You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, on June the 23rd, 2018, the soccer team just finished a practice. And then 12 boys and the assistant coach decided, you know what today is? Today is the day we're going splunking. So if you know what splunking is, that is the day we are entering into a cave. So this was kind of a normal trek for them. It was a familiar cave. This is something they did uh, quite often, but they, they do the splunking thing. They are in the cave doing the thing. They are two and a half miles into this massive cave system. They're about a half mile down under the, uh, the, the you know, underground. And that's when the rain started. And in a matter of moments, these 12 boys and their coach are trapped alone in a dark cave. Can you imagine that moment when it dawns on you? If you're them, we will die in this cave unless someone rescues us. Can just put yourself in, in their shoes, imagining what that would feel like in that dark cave when that realization hits. Now, as soon as word got out, if you remember back just a few years ago when this happened, uh, you know, the rescue mission was launched. And it was an international sort of mission to, to rescue these kids. Uh, it involved 10,000 people. 10,000 people got mobilized for this rescue mission. Uh, there were uh, 100 professional divers that were called in from around the world. There were representatives from about 100 governmental agencies around the world. There were 2,000 soldiers, 900 police officers, and it required all sorts of equipment. There were 700 tanks of oxygen for all these scuba divers to, to work uh, with. There was machinery there to pump 1 billion liters of water out of this cave. I mean, you, you have a crazy rescue mission that, that is started here. Then after 17 days and the lives of two Navy SEALs, all 12 boys and their coach were rescued. It's an amazing story. It's, it's a rescue story. And these stories of rescue are, in a lot of ways, the best kind of stories. Our hearts are just sort of pulled into stories like this. And there is a reason we love stories like this, rescue stories. We love rescue stories because rescue stories reflect God's story. The, the biggest story. That, that's why we love these types of stories. Imagine someone coming up to you and asking you the question, what is the Bible? And then you're going to answer them. Here's what the Bible is. Now, there's a lot of right things you could say in response to what is the Bible. But here's one right thing that you could say in that moment. It is a story of rescue. That's what Genesis through Revelation are, are describing and telling you. It's a story of rescue. So the Bible is full of many stories. There's all of these little stories that make up that big story of rescue. And all those little stories are, are pointing to and meant to be seen through so that we can see that one big story of rescue. The Bible's full of many characters, but all of those characters are meant to be seen through. We're meant to see through those characters all the way to one character, Jesus, the one sent to rescue us from our enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and to restore everything our enemies have taken from us. We're meant to see that one person in the Bible. And this little story that we're in this morning in Genesis 
chapter 14, this story of Abraham rescuing Lot, it is meant to, like every other story in the scriptures, it's meant to be seen through to the grand story, the big rescue story of the Bible. So here's what I want to do with you over the next couple of minutes. I want to point out two pictures from this story that point us to the big story. So two stories are two pictures in this story of rescue that point us to the big story of rescue in the scriptures. So let's jump in here. Genesis 14. Uh, the passage starts in verse 1 by introducing four kings. Now, these four kings are like the big bullies on the block, right? This is those kings. They're, they're the bad guys. They are the big bullies. Uh, there's Amraphel, Arioch, Keter Laomer. Now, nobody wants to say that more than once. So from now on, we're calling him Cheddar, all right? That, that's what he's going to be for, for the rest of the morning. And then you've got Tidal. Now, let's call these four kings the, the eastern kings, right? That's, that's who they are. And, uh, and Cheddar, he's like the biggest of all the bullies. You could think of Cheddar as like the mob boss of all these kings. He's the one calling all the shots. He's the one making all this stuff uh, happen, all right? So that's the four eastern kings. Then in verse 2, we're introduced to five kings, Okay, here's verse 2. Uh, you just read it along there. Here, here's the names you're going to find there. Uh, starting in verse 2, you've got Saruman. You've got Aragorn. You've got Elrond. You've got, yeah, no, those names aren't in there. But I do feel like I'm reading a chapter out of Lord of the Rings. That, that's what this, this is making me feel. But these five kings are the western kings. So you've got the eastern kings and you've got the western kings. And the western kings have been under the thumb of the eastern kings. Right? So the eastern kings, they're the mob boss. The western kings have been paying tribute to the mob boss, sending money, paying tribute to these eastern kings. And this was the moment. This was the day where they decided no more. Enough's enough. We are not sending any more of our money over to these eastern kings. We're not doing it. Now, from there, the story gets very predictable. What happens when the mob boss doesn't get what he wants? War. That's what happens. Now, as a side note, this is the first time in the scriptures that we have war introduced. We've had people killing people. Think of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. But we haven't had peoples killing peoples. This is the moment war gets introduced. And the, these four bullies, the, those eastern kings, they are not to be messed with. You don't want to see these guys in a dark alley. I mean, they, they are those guys. And uh, the battle begins in verse 8. Then verses 10 and 11 show us how the war went. So in verse 10, we read, Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell in, uh, into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom, all the possessions of Gomorrah, and all of their provisions, and went on their way. So here is what we find here. The mob boss is back in control. Right? He has reasserted his dominance over the block. And Ch uh, Cheddar here, he is ruthless. He spares nothing. He takes everything, right? He takes possessions. He takes provisions. He takes people. He takes it all back with him. Now, the question when I read that is, why is this in the Bible? Why are we being told the stories of these four kings and these five kings going to war? Why is that? Well, it's not in the Bible to give us a history lesson of these kings and kingdoms. That's not why it's in the Bible. It is in the Bible because it intersects with God's history, with redemptive history. It's in the Bible because of verse 12. Because these four kings 
who have just beat up the five kings, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, do you remember Lot from last week? Um, the, in Genesis 13, the previous chapter, the family is on the verge of relational strife. It, it has gotten to a serious point. And Abraham comes to Lot with an offer. Um, Abraham, or Lot, the, the land is too small for us, so let's do this. You pick what you want, and I'll take what's left over. If you take the right, I'll take the left. If you take the left, I'll take the right. You take your pick, I'll take what's left. And from there, we begin to see a picture of folly play out in Lot's life. Uh, Lot does not operate by inquiry. It's all by instinct. What do I think? What do I want? Right? He's not asking God. It's all instinct. Uh, you keep reading uh, in that text in Genesis 13, and his eyes are set on the wrong thing. It's just a picture of folly. He wants more of Egypt, more of this world, more of the stuff of this world. That, that's what his eyes are set on, just the wrong things. And then step by step, we, seeing Lot, or we see Lot walk away from God and walk to sin. The sin of Sodom. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 14, verse 12, the text we just read, he is living in Sodom. He's become one of them. He has just immersed himself back into sin. This is our man Lot. And then think about what this text is showing us. So this is Lot. He's immersed in Sodom. He has just been taken captive. What is this text showing us? It's painting us a picture of what sin does. And here's what sin does. Sin enslaves. There's our first picture. Sin enslaves. Verse 12, they also took Lot and his possessions and went on their way. Lot, our man, is being led as a prisoner of war, as a slave, back to their home country where he will be a slave for the rest of his days. That's Lot in this text. And this story points us to the story. And in the rescue story of the Bible, here is what we find. The, the Bible over and over is going to teach us this. Sin enslaves. Every sin, every time, this is what it's doing. It's enslaving. Now, listen to how the Bible talks about the human condition. It's describing humanity. Listen to how it describes it in John 8. This is Jesus. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a what? slave to sin. And because we are all really good at sinning when we come out of the womb, like we've got that thing nailed, here's what the Bible's telling us. We are all, when we come out of the womb, slaves to sin. Uh, this is Paul in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we were ourselves uh, once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and then look at what it says about us, slaves to various passions and pleasures. This is how Paul sees the human condition. We are born like this as slaves to our passions, slaves to our pleasures, slaves to sin. When Jesus is introducing his earthly ministry, he does this in Luke chapter 4. And he introduces his earthly ministry by quoting from Isaiah 61. And listen to how Jesus says it. In Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then look at this phrase. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Th that's like what I've come to do, he's saying. Now, just think about this for a moment. What is the problem the good news of Jesus is solving? Is it trying to make 
bad people into better people? Is that like the thing the good news of Jesus is doing? The answer is no. Is it trying to make um, ignorant people into really smart people? Is that what it's trying to do? The answer is no. Here is what the good news of Jesus is doing. It is taking people who are held captive and rescuing them setting them free. That's the problem that it solves. Now, when we're asking that question of, of uh, or the, the, thinking about this issue of, of how sin enslaves, we need to ask the question, well, who are the captives? Who are they? Who are the people that are enslaved? And here is what the Bible is telling us. East of Eden, everyone's a captive. East of Eden, everyone is living under the tyranny of sin. That is the human condition. Like Lot, we have been captured by the mob boss of sin. And we are being led to our eternal ruin by the boss, by sin. Now, this text also shows us that captives can't rescue themselves. It's like beyond the, the ability of the captive to do something uh, to rescue themselves, to, to set themselves free. They, they can't do that. Uh, the story of those 12 boys in that cave is really fascinating. And uh, as soon as the, uh, the, the divers got to them, they realized that they had a serious problem. These boys are not going to be able to contribute to their rescue. There is nothing they're going to do to help us get them out of here. Uh, the way out of that cave system was so complex that it required a professional diver. I mean, you're, you're having to take your tank off to get through these little spots and spaces. And they just know that any normal person like you and me doing that is going to panic and you're going to drown right there in the middle of the cave. Right, so, so they knew these boys could contribute nothing to their saving, nothing to their rescue. So here is what they did. This is amazing. Here's what they did. They sent a doctor into the cave, into the boys, and they sedated the boys. They put the boys to sleep in the cave. They strap an oxygen mask onto their face, and they carry them out of the cave. Now, that is a picture, friends, of your saving. That is a picture of God's rescuing work. These kids are totally passive. They're contributing nothing to their rescue. Just like we are totally passive. The only thing we're bringing to the table is our need of rescue. That's what we're bringing to the table. We need the help of another. We need the help of God in our life. And our man Lot's in the same position. I mean, he could have thrown a few jabs at these kings. He might have slipped in an uppercut on one of these kings. But, but Lot the captive is not going to overthrow these bully kings. It's not going to happen. Captives can't rescue themselves. And that takes us to the second picture we see in this text. We see a picture of what sin does. It enslaves. Now we see a picture of what God does. And here's what God does in this text. God uses rescued people in his rescuing work. That's what God does. God uses rescued people in his rescuing work. God loves to rescue. Aren't we grateful we have a God like that? His heart is zealous to rescue, zealous to save. That's our God. And he does that rescuing work through rescued people. This is who God is. He is zealous for rescue. And this is what he does. He uses people like you and me in that rescuing work. Now, you see this in verse 13. Let's pick it up there. Then one who had ex escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Aner. 
These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, here's, here's what we're seeing in, in this text. We're seeing a picture of faith. This is what we're seeing throughout the life of Abraham. We're seeing a picture of faith. We're seeing faith at work in a human heart. Th that's the story we're seeing here. Now, now think about this though. If you're Abraham, Lot was acting a fool, right? I mean, Lot, he is, he is sleeping in the bed that he has made. His eyes were set on the wrong thing. He, step by step, was walking into sin. And when you walk into sin, sin's going to do what sin does. It's going to enslave. So, so Lot is just sort of getting what he deserves in the text here. But notice Abraham. Even though that's true, Abraham's heart springs toward, it leaps toward Lot in his captivity. Now, I want to show you two things that faith does here that we see it doing in Abraham. Two thing, things that faith does in our hearts. Number one, faith sees. It opens up our eyes so that we can see. Faith sees. Abraham saw Lot in his captivity, in his need, in his desperation, in his doom, in his helplessness. Abraham saw Lot. The flesh, on the other hand, sin, here's what it does. It blinds us. Sin makes us self-absorbed. The flesh, sin, it, it makes it to where we just are, are unable to see past our own little lives. All we can see is what I want and what I need and all the things going on and all my little life. That's all we can see. We're just self-absorbed. That's what the flesh does to us. That's what sin does to us. But faith, on the other hand, opens up our eyes. It cures our blindness. We, we can now see with the eyes of faith past ourselves to the captivity of others. That's what faith does in a human heart. It lets us see it. It lifts up our gaze beyond our own little lives. So let's just stop here and ask the question. Do you see the captivity of those around you? Do you see it? Do, do you see people all around you who right now are being plundered under the tyranny of sin? Uh, people right now being led as a slave to their eternal ruin. Do, do you see that? Are your eyes open to these things? Monday, when you go to work, is, it, is this thought present for you? Years ago, I heard a guy tell a story of being on vacation at a beach, and he and his son were walking from the hotel out to the beach. So just picture that moment. You're on vacation. He's with his eight-year-old son. So just think about that moment. And uh, they are walking out toward the beach, and there, over on the right, he, he sees a commotion. He sees a disabled man who is trying to get out to the ocean fall in the sand. And he just, he's having a hard time getting up, a hard time moving, just a hard time doing it all over there. And, and imagine that moment. What would you do? You're on vacation for crying out loud, right? You're on vacation. You're walking to the beach and you see the commotion happen. What would you do? Well, here's what he did. 
without even thinking about it, just reflexively, he shields the eyes of his son to keep him from seeing it, and he turns his head and he walks in the other direction. And I think that is a good metaphor for how you and I often operate with the captivity that's all around us. We do everything we can to shield our eyes from it as we turn and look in the opposite direction. I want to put you before Jesus right now. And I want to put you before Jesus with a question. And here's the question I want you to ask the Lord. Do I care about the captivity around me? Just ask the Lord that. Ask him to talk to you about that. Do, do, I, do I care that people all around me are enslaved to sin? They, they don't even know, but they're in that cold, dark cave. And without rescue, they're going to die in that cave forever. Do I, do I care? Do I care that people are being led by sin to their eternal ruin in hell? And Charles Spurgeon was right when he said the hell of hell is that it's forever. Like, like they're being led to their eternal ruin. Do, do I care? That's the question. I just want you to sit before the Lord for just a moment here and ask him, do I care? And I don't want you to think about it in theoretical terms, but see, see faces and, and get names in your mind. The names of your family members that don't know Jesus. The names of your friends that don't know Jesus. The names of your neighbors that don't know Jesus. The names of your classmates who don't know Jesus. They're all going to end up either with Jesus forever or apart from Jesus forever. Those are the only two options. And the question is, do we care about that? Does our heart bleed for that? Is that does that do something to us on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday? Is that, is that in us like that? Do, do, do I care? Or is my head turned? Just sort of ignoring that problem and thinking about other things. Faith sees, but that's not all faith does. Faith also sets free. Faith gets to work in this passage. After Abraham sees Lot's captivity, his heart leaps toward Lot and it gets to work. It, it risks life and limb for the rescue of Lot. That, that's what we see in this text. So look at verse 14. Now just notice what Abraham does in verse 14 and beyond. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, here's what he does. For, uh, the second half of verse 14. He led forth his trained men. Born in his house, 318 of them. Now, you're supposed to sort of see the absurdity of that. You've got the four big mob, uh, mob bosses, right? The four bully kings. They have just whipped everyone around here. And Abraham is about to go with his 318 men, the people of his house, along with a few allies, and they're supposed to beat these four kings. You're supposed to just feel the absurdity. You're supposed to feel the risk in it. Abraham, are you crazy? That's who you're taking to go fight these kings? This is what he does, though. He leads forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and they defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. In verse 13, or, uh, 16. Then he brought back all of the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. I just want you to notice the focus of this passage is on Abraham's decisive doing. 
Abraham's doing things. Faith is propelling him forward. Faith moved Abraham toward Lot to set him free. Just like faith moves us toward not Lot, but the lost to set them free. In this passage, Abraham freed the captives by pursuing these evil kings. And what we do, you and I in our lives, is we free the captives by proclaiming Jesus as the king. Right? This is how this story is meant to be seen through to the story. Now, let me just back up here. And I want to address God's doing and our doing in this passage. How, do, how does God's sovereign doing work with our human doing, our doing, your doing, Abraham's doing? So in the scriptures, God is the decisive doer. Right? This is what it means for God to be sovereign. He is in control of everything. He is the decisive doer. So if we were to kind of answer the question from an ultimate sense, who is responsible for Lot's deliverance, for his rescue? The only answer we could give is God. That, that's who's responsible for it. That's who actually delivers Lot. But God's sovereignty, right, his doing involves both the ends, like that's the fruit, and the means, like how it's going to be accomplished. God's sovereign doing covers both of those things, the ends and the means. So maybe you have been asked this question at some point in your life. If God is sovereign, why would we pray? Why would we do that? Well, it's because God's sovereign over the means and the end, right? Because in our doing, in our praying, God works decisively. That's why we pray. Or maybe you've been asked this question, if God is sovereign, why do we tell people about Jesus? He'll just save who he wants. If God's sovereign, why, why do we do that? Well, it's because God is in control of the ends, saving, and the means, right? So because in our doing, right, our telling people about Jesus, God works decisively. It's in our doing that God works for the rescue of people. So it's not in the scriptures, it's not God's doing or our doing, Right? It's not how it works. No, in the scriptures, it's God doing through our doing, right? It, it, these things are fitting like this. So now we can step back and say, listen, the pressure's off. When it comes to us being involved in rescue stories, it's God saving, not you. God is the decisive doer. And we can also see that God has stuff for us to do. There is doing involved. Why is it that God has you in your workplace? Why has he given you your group of friends? Why has he given you interest in those hobbies that get you around those people? Why are you in that classroom, in that neighborhood, at that school? Why is your, uh, your kiddo on that team with those uh, kids, with those parents? Why is all of that true? Here's the answer. It's because God uses rescued people in his rescuing work. That's why. He has you there on purpose. Because he wants to involve you in his rescuing work. So uh, this is the moment I want you to grab your, that who's your one card there on the seat that you came, uh, that you just sat on. We did this last week and we're doing it again this week. Just grab that card there, that who's your one card. And by the way, if you filled one out last week, you can just take the card that should be in your Bible. You can just take that card out and you can just set it on your lap and begin to pray for your one uh, right now. But let me back up and tell you again why it is that we uh, do that card. Uh, why this is a normal thing for us around here. Uh, first, it's because God is a rescuer. God is zealous to save, zealous to rescue. And we want to be like our dad. We want our heart to look like God's heart. And we need habits to make our heart look like his. 
And so this is our habit. Our normal habit around here is every quarter, we ask Jesus for that one person who's far from him. And then here's what we do. He gives us that name. And then here's what we commit to do. To pray for that person and to pursue that person. And what we mean by pursuit is uh, you're going to initiate a conversation about Jesus with that person. Like you're going to talk to them about the most important things of life. Heaven, hell, Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus. You're talking to them about the most important things. Now, people periodically ask me, can I, can I like write the same name down again and again and, and again? Can I do that? And my answer is like, uh, yeah, you can write the same name down again as long as you are committed to both praying for them and pursuing them. As long as in this quarter you're saying, I'm going to initiate another conversation with Jesus uh, with that person. If you're committed to that, by all means, uh, you know, write their name down again. But if you're not committed to that with that person, if it's like, man, the relationship is not such that this quarter I'm going to redo that conversation, then ask the Lord for a name that you can, that you can pray for and pursue, that this quarter you'll, you'll open up a conversation about the most important things of life. Now, the goal in our church family is 100% participation. So everyone who calls Stonegate home, if this is your church home, that you are in on this with us. You find that one name who's far from Jesus, you're going to pray for them and pursue them. Now, I want to address what's in the room. And here's what's in the room. People who heard the very same thing last week and didn't do it. That's in the room. And people who are hearing this right now and are like, you know what? I still ain't going to do it. Not going to do it. Now, I want to just take a moment uh, to talk about that. And and if that's you, if last week you were here and you didn't do it, if this week you're here and you're like, I don't think I'm going to do it, then I want you to to get before the Lord and ask this question. Why is that? Just to be curious about that. Why is that? When I'm hearing, this is something our entire church does, but I'm like, yeah, I don't don't think I'm going to do that though. Why is that? And here's what I think many of us will find when we ask the question, why is that? Why are we not in on this and doing this? I think what we're going to find is we just don't care about the captivity of others. I think that's what's down in there. Somewhere along the way, our heart has drifted away from the heart of God, that zealous heart of God for rescue. We We just don't care about that as much. It's just not like what's burning in our soul. It's just not what our heart is bleeding for. So I want you to ask yourself again, do I care about that, the captivity of others? Do I want my life to be used in the rescue of others? Do do I want that? Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying and bringing up this moment to shame you. I'm really not. I, I have found my heart there many times in my life. So if you're finding, you know what? The truth is I don't care. When I look at my life, I might say I care, but here's what my life actually says. I don't. My heart has drifted away from the Lord in this area. If that's you, this is an invitation this morning. It's an invitation from the Lord to you to confess that to the Lord, to say that to the Lord. God, my, my, my heart's just not where your heart is. It is not zealous for rescue like your heart, oh God. But I want it to be God. Would you make it that? Would you do that in me? Oh God, I want to have a bleeding heart for people who are far from you. So God, would you do that in me? And then after you ask the Lord to do that in you, you ask the Lord for that one person who's far from him that this quarter you'll, you'll pray for and pursue. And you write that name down and you commit to doing that. And it's through these habits that God forms our hearts to look like his. That, that's how it works.
And this is for everyone at Stonegate, everyone who calls Stonegate home. And here's the reason. It's for every single one of us. It's because God uses rescued people in his rescuing work. He wants to use you in his work. It's amazing to think about this. God is inviting you into that rescuing work. Can you believe that? He is letting you play a part in the eternal rescue of another human being on their way to hell who will end up forever in heaven with Jesus. And he's saying, you want to come and play in this? You want to come be a part of that? He wants to use you in that rescuing work. Okay, we're going to end where the story ends. In the last few verses, two kings come out to meet Abram. The king of Sodom comes out to meet Abram. And Abram's like, listen, man, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want my heart to drift in any way, shape, or form to the sin of Sodom. No, king of Sodom, nothing to do with you. But then another king comes out. You see this in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies, Abram, into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So who delivered the enemy into Abram's hand? God did. Abraham rescues his nephew Lot, but who gets the glory for that rescue? God does. And what does Abraham do in response to God's grace in his life? To, to being used in this rescuing work? What does Abraham do? He tithes. He gives generously to God. But he, he tithes, he gives, he gives a tenth of everything. And who does Abraham give it to? Well, in this text, it's to this man, Melchizedek. Now, we see this guy, he's a very shadowy figure in the scriptures. He shows up, he's kind of like Gandalf, by the way, in Lord of the Rings. He just kind of pops in and out of the story. But he shows up three times in the Bible, in this passage, Genesis 14, in Psalm 110, and then in Hebrews 5 through 7. And in every one of these moments where he's showing up later in the scriptures, that the Bible is trying to be clear in connecting his ministry to the ministry of Jesus. It's trying to connect these two things together. So you see this clearly in Hebrews chapter 7. Let me read this passage to you. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to, and, and to him, Abraham gave a tenth part of everything. He is first, Melchizedek. He, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But listen to what it says here. He's resembling the son of man. He continues a priest forever. So what Hebrews is trying to get us to see here is, it's trying to help us see through Melchizedek all the way to Jesus. The author of Hebrews is saying, hey, don't get hung up on this man. See through this man all the way to the person of Jesus because Melchizedek points to Jesus. And then you get the summary in verses 23 through 25 of Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, now who is the he? It's no longer Melchizedek. We are meant to see through him to Jesus now. But he, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. And it goes on. Because he, Jesus, continues forever. Consequently, 
This is the summary statement. In summary now, here is what we learn from this text. He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews is showing us that the whole story points to Jesus. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus. The theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. He's better than everyone and everything you see in the Old Testament. Just like Abraham rescues Lot, Jesus rescues us. Jesus really is the better Abraham who left his home and went in pursuit of captives, even at the risk of his own life. And he sets us free by routing the evil kings of Satan's sin and death. He is the better Abraham. And just like Abraham gave to Melchizedek, we give to Jesus. Jesus is the better Melchizedek. He is the perfect king and perfect priest who comes from the new Jerusalem with bread and wine to refresh his people. That's Jesus. Hebrews tells us that our man Melchizedek, he shows up on the scene throughout the scriptures to remind us of this, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost that there is not a person in this room beyond the rescuing work of Jesus. I don't care how deep you are into that cave of sin, how far you are under the ground of sin, you're not beyond the reach of God's rescuing work. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. It's a rescue story. It's Jesus doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves and friends. Jesus is inviting us into that. To, to taste it, and then to be a part of it. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you a moment here to allow the Spirit of God to press down into your soul what would be helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Do you care? Gosh, what a, what a great question for us to wrestle with this morning. God, do I care about those in captivity, enslaved to sin. Do I care, oh God? If not, you can confess that to the Lord. Ask the Lord to change your heart. And then ask the Lord for that one name that you can pray for and pursue over the last three months of this year. And then most importantly, we all need to ask, have I tasted the rescue of God? Have I experienced it? Have, has there been that decisive moment where I have been rescued from my sin, where I've thrown my life onto the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, where I've trusted in the person of Jesus to rescue me? If not, you can call out right now where you are, and Jesus will rescue you. <laughs> right now, he'll do it. He'll free you. And for all those rescued, God wants to use you in that rescuing work. So God, would you do it? By faith, would you open up our eyes and heart to be used for these things, for the most important things? God, would you do it? It's in the good name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.